Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. I hope you've had a great weekend. It's been great here. It's been nice and sunny and warm. 70s. Wow. Almost almost springy, springy, springy-like. Hopefully springy starts to come around. I have lots of work to do in my yard after, after those huge storms. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. And if you that what that means is that if you have any or you think you might have any paranormal issues, that you look us up on Facebook and everywhere else that we're on, because we're all over social media, to ask us to help you out. And uh, we'll get out there and help you out. We may not be able to get out there right away. California is a big state, but uh, we will get out to help you out, okay, one way or another. All right, today is probably the last day of reading the history and haunting of Salem, uh, the witch trials and beyond. By Rebecca F. Pittman, we have permission from the author and the and and the publisher to do this, but I think this may be the last day. Uh, for uh, up until this point, we've been reading the story of the witch trials that ended, and then we started to read stories about the buildings and everything there, you know, around Salem. And uh, there was a section in the book I was reading through uh, last night to verify information, you know, to see how it was going to go. And I kind of decided to skip over a few things because it really goes into details about the architecture and stuff. And the, the normal layperson is not going to know what that's what they're talking about. So I decided to kind of skip it over. So we're going to start with the haunting part of Salem. Okay. So now we're at the haunting section of the book, and that's where we're going to start out. Now, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you hear, please hit that like follow follow button if you haven't followed already and if you're watching from youtube and you like what you hear please do the same thing only subscribe we have over 541 videos over there uh for your perusal i'm sure you'll find something that you like and by subscribing you also get notified when we have a video out okay that being said we're going to get started and this is the haunting portion of the book and like i said we may finish the book tonight we will see we'll see where we get we end up The 1692 Salem Witch Trials left a stain on American history that impacted the New England cities and hamlets surrounding it. Most were in some way touched by the witchcraft outbreak, whether directly or indirectly. The names of the accused were from, from counties all the way up into modern-day Maine, which was, in 1692, part of Massachusetts. You can't visit these places without a stirring in the soul. Remnants of the past tragedy still find it. Find, find its mark on historic homes, monuments, tombstones, and, and memorials. This stirring goes beyond our perceived idea of, of a haunting. While strange occurrences are reported in many properties throughout Salem and Danvers, it is an overlying atmosphere that one feels most here. And, perhaps, a warning that the culmination of superstition and unforeseen events could begin it all again. I will admit, I have deviated somewhat from the usual accounts of paranormal activity that make up the haunting section of my books. The research and reporting of the witch trials touched me more than any book I've written. I've stayed my hand more in this section than normal, out of respect for the lives lost. I do continue to believe that places carry shadows of events, and science is corroborating the fact that energy can be retained and transmitted through certain conditions. I have no issue with that. I have witnessed too many unaccounted for events to know there are more things in heaven and earth Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Many places in Salem lay claim to paranormal events, and I will give them a cursory mention here. It is also more daunting to report the occurrences of an entire community than it is to zoom in on one venue. 
as I've done in the past. I hope you will not be disappointed with the treatment of the topic. As I said, the telling of the witch trials carried a weight and a certain responsibility I could not walk away from. Rebecca F. Pittman. The John Proctor House, 348 Lowell Street. Peabody, Massachusetts. While interviewing, excuse me, while interviewing Barbara Bridgewater, current owner of the John Proctor House in Peabody, I asked if she had noted, noticed any paranormal activity in the home. She was kind enough to share this with me. Barbara, there have been a fair number of occurrences. My youngest daughter, who is close to the age of Mary Warren, the Proctor house servant, has experienced at least three nosebleeds and believes she was pushed or pulled down one of the staircases. The first time we stayed there, my husband and both daughters heard female voices around two or three in the morning, and they felt it was in the house downstairs on the first floor. They said the voices were distinctly female, and they, they know the voices did not come from the outside since it was late December and very cold outside. I have heard the player piano play in the late hours of the night, two or three a.m., at least two times. And on my most recent trip in late August, we had an additional occurrence with the piano. The Travel Channel was filming interviews of me and my youngest daughter during the day. The crew was there a couple days. The day they left, my older daughter and I went around the entire house to close things up since we were going to leave for a short getaway to Rhode Island early the next day. We closed all the windows, doors, and the piano. When we returned late the next night from Rhode Island, we checked around the first floor again before we went to bed. We did this together and found that the piano keyboard had been opened. There was no way for anyone to get in the house, and no way it could have opened. We both looked at each other and asked if the other had opened it. Neither of us had. We don't know how that happened, but we almost left the house to stay at a local hotel. We would have left it. We would have left if it wasn't so close to midnight. Each time we are there, we sleep on the second floor and hear the house settling and what sounds like people walking up on the third floor above us. I know there's energy there but I feel that it's not bad or malicious. The Hawthorne Hotel, 18 Washington Square West. The historic Hawthorne Hotel holds court in the middle of Salem, towering six stories above the streets that once saw the horse, that once saw horse and rider, ox carts and pillories. Built in 1925, it once boasted a secret society on its rooftop for seafaring mariners called the Salem Maritime Society. From 1766 on, they held their clandestine meetings, and a few of their ghosts are said to haunt the hotel. Like all historic hotels who have watched the parade of life amble through its long corridors, the Hawthorne has some particularly infamous rooms that seem to have put out the welcome mat for those from the invisible world. Michael Teleglou, Teleglau stayed in room 325 and sent me this account. Michael, I wanted to pass along this story about room 325 at the Hawthorne. In my opinion, the room had a creepy vibe to it. My mom and I felt the same atmosphere. There was a constant smell of perfume, and my mom was not wearing any. Although we did not have anybody hop in bed with us, my mom did think she heard someone walk across the room at night. I left two recorders running throughout our time there, and both had a good amount of audio on them. In my bedroom of the, se the two-bedroom set, I felt as if I was being watched. The chance to be there was a night I will always remember. I turned off my recorder several times to change the batteries. The last time I turned them off in the morning, something strange happened. Seconds after I turned the second one off, I could have sworn I heard a female sing my name. 
This author stayed in the Hawthorne in 2015 in room 628. The room's window faces the Salem Witch Museum and the statue of Roger Current. It's a gorgeous view at night when the museum's red spotlight showcased the stone structure. I was reading in bed and glanced over at the hotel's digital clock. It read 1045 in glowing red numerals. I took a drink from a plastic bottle of water on the nightstand where the clock sat and turned off the lights. I glanced at the clock again in the dark and faced, faded off to sleep. Sometime during the night, I was awakened by a sharp crackling sound. I was still groggy, but I know a strange sound had wakened me. Then it came again, a sharp crackling noise. I turned to look at the clock and felt confused. It had been clearly in view when I went to sleep, but now, looking at the red glowing numerals, it was like, tr it was like trying to see them through a blur. Something was blocking the view, yet I could see them in a distorted way. I reached for the nightstand lamp and turned it on. The water bottle I had placed back on the nightstand after taking a drink before bed had moved a good foot away from the lamp where I set it. It was now blocking the clock, and it was through the water in it that I was seeing the distorted clock's dial. I hesitantly picked it up. As my grasp closed around the thin plastic, it made a sharp crackling sound, the way plastic does when compressed or bent. I nearly dropped it. Whatever move that had caused it to make the noise, that, uh, that awakened me. I'm not ashamed to say I placed the bottle in the bathroom and closed the door. Many ghost stories swirl about the Hawthorne Hotel. Perhaps it is its location adjacent to Washington Square. In the 17th century, Washington Square was a typical New England common. It was used to allow livestock such as sheep to graze and later was used as a militia trading ground. The pillories where the public humiliation was carried out may have been there as well. Today, it's a nine-acre park with odd angles surrounded by stately homes and the gateway to the stores and restaurants that fill the brim, fill the brim and fall. Many people have felt strange sensations in the park. Several stories have been reported of visitors feeling pressed against by unseen presences as they walk through the common. One man said, It's as if you just walk through a crowd of people and they are bumping up against you. Some reports have surfaced stating that Anne Puddinger's ghost was seen walking through the 17th century common before she was hanged for witchcraft. I have had emails from people saying they have looked down from the Hawthorne Hotel under the square and seen strange lights and, and shimmering forms. Whoever the spirits are, several seem to have checked in, into the Hawthorne Hotel. In 1766, the Salem Marine Society was founded by local seafaring men. Its building, where the society met, sat where the hotel stands today. Their meeting place was raised to allow room for the hotel's construction. The caveat to such a situation was the hotel was the supply and meeting place for the displaced captains and other seafaring souls. The hotel agreed to construct a small structure on the rooftop, whose interior is an exact replica of the cabin of a ship called the Torayatopin. It still stands today and houses the Secret Society's meetings. Many people have reported seeing shapes. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> okay. Many people have reported seeing shapes of sea captains in the lower deck of the hotel, which carries a nautical theme. They are caught from the corner of the eye, walking across the room, only to disappear into a panel wall. A panel wall. It would seem there are more secrets to the Marine Society than we know. The Ropes Mansion, <clears throat> 318 Essex Street. The Ropes Mansion is a 
Georgian colonial home located in the McIntyre Historic District in Salem. The Peabody Essex Museum now owns the home and offers it as one of their tours. The house was built for Samuel Barnard, a wealthy Salem merchant in the 1720s. It was later purchased by Judge Nathaniel Ropes from Barnard's nephew. It underwent re renovations over the years, but still retains much of its original structure. In 1907, the house was given to trustees of the Ropes Memorial for public use. A lovely garden is found behind the house and is worth seeing. During the Revolution, Judge Ropes lived in the mansion. He was loyal to the Crown, which incited the local colonists, and they reverted to the witch trial days. They decided to hang him. Storming his house, they found the judge withering away with smallpox, a plague that had impacted Salem in the 17th century. The poor man was so far gone, they departed and left, left it to other forces to deal with him. He did die in the home, <clears throat> but his was not the only tragic death reported. One night in 1839, his wife Abigail passed too close to a fireplace in her bedchamber on the second floor, and her long dressing gown caught fire. Although she screamed for help, she finally succumbed to the flames and smoke. Tour guides have reported, <clears throat> geez, <clears throat> excuse me, that some photos taken for insurance purposes have shown indentations suddenly appearing on a sofa cushion as though someone just sat down. Tita Moss, owner of the Myrtles Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana, accidentally captured the ghost of a slave girl from another era while taking photos for insurance purposes. The photograph was submitted to a professional photographer and archivist who found it to be authentic. You can clearly see the figure of a black woman in a turban standing next to the building. Adding to the shivers is that you can see the plantation's clapboards through her shape. Race have been seen on the stairways and in the gardens at Rome Mansion. National Geographic. What's that? Okay. National Geographic was shooting photographs at the mansion in the 1970s. I don't know what that's doing there. National Geographic was shooting photographs at the mansion in the 1970s and was surprised to see the ghostly torso at feet of a man standing before one of the sofas. The mansion sits along a key line that runs along Essex Street in Salem. Oh, I'm sorry, a ley line. My God, I'm not seeing things like that. The mansion sits along a ley line that runs along Essex Street in Salem. Ley lines are natural energy lines below the ground surface and can purport extractivity in a location. Disney's 1993 film Hocus Pocus used the house as the home of Max Love's Max's love interest, Allison. 148 Washington Street. The Joshua Ward House in Salem has garnered a reputation as the most haunted home in the Witch City. With roots going back to 1692 and the dreaded Sheriff George Corwin, is it any wonder is it any wonderful is it any wonderful ghost hunters is it any wonder that ghost hunters are fond of coming here. George Corwin was, Corwin was so notorious for his dealings with the imprisoned witches that his family feared that, after his death, the townspeople would take the body and tear it to pieces. As noted in the history section of this book, Philip English did indeed steal Corwin's body and held it for ransom while trying to recoup some of the, recoup some of the money stolen from him while he was hiding from the trials. He gave it back only a few days later. Apparently, the family buried the sheriff's corpse in the cellar of the house, as they feared his grave would be ravaged if interred in a local cemetery. The sheriff's house is no longer there, and a three-story federal-style building was constructed over the foundation. It was a grand home, 
and in 1789, George Washington asked to stay there while visiting Salem. A white burst, a white bust, I'm sorry, a white bust of the president can be seen on the second floor. The home once, boast, once boasted a view of the South River, but it was filled in in 1830. It was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1978. Carlson moved in in the 70s, and reports began circulating with strange things happening in the house. When the staff for the Realty Company arrived at work in the morning, they would find trash cans turned upside down, chairs had been moved, lampshades were upended, and strangest of all, the candlesticks would be found lying on the floor, twisted into an S-shape. The security alarms went off inexplicably. It was reported they went off over 60 times in two years when there was no cause to do so. <clears throat> One of the office rooms remained arctic cold despite efforts to warm it. Tales of a strange woman in a long black coat with frizzy hair and translucent skin have been told by more than one person working at the world, at the ward house. When Christmas photos of the Carson Realty employees were taken one year, a very strange photo emerged from the camera. Standing before a Christmas wreath hanging on a door is a blurry shot of a woman in a long black coat with what appears to be frizzy black hair. Unsolved Mysteries saw the picture in, in the 80s and had it tested for authenticity. Once it appeared on their show, it became a sensation. Julie Trembley, one of the employees at the time, was suggested as a person in the photo, standing before the wreath, which made her dark hair appear wild and frizzy. The person taking the photo argued that what he saw in the viewfinder and what emerged from the camera were not the same thing. As blurry as the picture is, it is very hard to discern the details. George Corwin's body was later moved to the Broad Street Cemetery. Corwin died on April 12, 1696, only three years after the witch trials ended. His wife, Lydia, was hounded by Philip English for restitution of the goods Corwin had stolen from him. She paid him off partially in silver in Linden's. When Lydia died a few years later, Corwin's estate was worth 73.84 pounds. His outstanding debts of 33-17-3 diminished the sum. If it is Corwin, or perhaps his wife Lydia haunting the old home site, it does not look like they are interested in leaving anytime soon, at least according to Salem. Oh, sorry, at least according to Salem tour guides who call it the most active place in Salem. My bad. Gardner Pingree House. Across the street and down a block from the Peabody Essex Museum is the Gardner Pingree House, owned by the museum. It is an exquisite mansion built in 1804. This author toured this beautiful house and was impressed with the retention of its 19th century architecture and warmth. If you tour the house, be sure to notice the brag button on the newel post at the bottom of the ground staircase. In the 1700s and 1800s, if an owner was rich enough to pay off the mortgage of his home, he would often drill a hole in the newel post of the main staircase and either insert the deed to the house or pour its ashes there. The hole was then capped. Okay, the hole was then capped with a button, usually of ivory. Wealthier owners sometimes used jewels. This way, this way, visiting guests could simply glimpse the button and know how wealthy the owner really was. It was a way of saying, "That's right, we own it," without bragging out loud. I've seen brag buttons at the Myrtles Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana, and at the Whaley House's back staircase in San Diego. While the furnishings and architecture are wonderful, 
The house was also the site of a brutal murder that was quite the sensation at the time. 80-year-old Captain Joseph White was a shipmaster and trader. He was attacked one evening and beaten over the head with a 22-inch piece of refurbished hickory, also called an Indian club. If that wasn't enough, the poor elderly man was stabbed 13 times near his heart. As the story goes, Joseph Joe Knapp, Captain White's grandnephew, had recently learned that the captain had just completed a will, leaving 15000 to Mary Beckford, White's niece, housekeeper, and next of kin. Mrs. Beckford had a daughter, also named Mary, who was living in Wenham with her husband, the same Joseph Jenkins Knapp, Jr. Joe figured that if old White died before the will could be notarized, half of his 200000 fortune would go to his mother-in-law, Mrs. Beckford, rather than a paltry 15000 His wife, Mary Jr., would benefit indirectly. Joe and his brother John set upon a plan. They hired a man of questionable character, Richard Crowwinshield, from a prominent family to do the deed for $1,000. Richard was to kill the old man in his sleep. Joe Knapp had access to the mansion, and on April 6, 1830, he stole the will and left a, black, a back window open for the murderer's entrance. Cronenshield played his part, entering the mansion through the window and climbing the staircase to the second floor, where he found the old man in bed. He killed him with one blow of the Indian club to the left temple, while he continued with the stabbing is unknown. He hid the murder weapons under the steps of the former Howard Street eating house. The police had suspicions from the beginning. For one thing, nothing was missing from the wealthy sea merchant's home. The will was not common knowledge, and so its absence went undetected. The Knapp brothers came up with an alibi to make it look like a family attack by saying they were robbed that same night by three men on their way to Windham. It was a puzzling mystery. Somehow, Richard Cro- 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 Ooh, somehow Richard Cronshield <laughs> was found out and arrested. Rather than face conviction, he hung himself in prison. Suspicion fell upon the Knapp brothers, and they were arrested. None other than Daniel Webster took on the case of the century, acting as a prosecutor against the Knapps. He called the murder a most extraordinary case and a cool, calculating, money-making murder. The Knapp brothers were convicted after finally confessing to the murder for hire. Rumor had it that Webster's oration during the trial inspired Edgar Allan Poe to pen his famous The Telltale Heart, whose plot centered around the grisly murder of an old man and the guilt that followed after. On September 28, 1830, John Francis Knapp was hanged in front of the old Salem jail, sending Salem back nearly 200 years. Joseph Knapp, the mastermind behind the murder, was likewise hanged in November 1830. The Peabody Essex Mansion Museum, I'm sorry, houses the Indian Club from the murder in a location not open to the public. But, as mentioned earlier, you can tour the house. In a strange twist of irony, the Crown and Shield Bentley House was moved next door to the Gardner Pingree House in 1959, so that now the murderer's home and the victims are side by side. Many report seeing the specter of old man White peering down from his second story window on the anniversary of his murder on April 6, 1830. Give me a quick check. I'm taking a look at any comments you guys might have. Give me a second. Okay. Just checking. Okay. The John Ward House. 9 Brown Street in the Federal Court in the Federal the Federal Garden area. 
Make sure I got the right house. Yeah. Okay. Directly behind the Gardner Pedigree House, Pedigree House, sits the John Ward House. This was not its original location. Built circa 1684, the Timber House literally sat across the street from the Salem Jail during the witch trials. The house stood on a one-acre lot with a kitchen garden and an outhouse. It witnessed the throngs of spectators pressing into its yard as ox carts loaded with condemned witches rode off down prison lane toward the Gallows Hills. Hill. It was also in close proximity to Giles Corey's execution site in the nearby field. The house was moved to its present site behind the Gardner Pingree House in 1910, as nearby houses and taverns were sometimes used to take prisoners while searching for witch marks. It has been rumored that John Moore, the John Ward House may have served such a purpose. Today, it, used, it is used by the Peabody Essex Museum for storage. Reports of screams coming from the house have been reported, as well as glimpses of specters if one peers through the diamond pane windows. Samuel Pickman House, corner of Charter and Liberty Streets. The Samuel Pickman House is located on Charter Street in Salem, Massachusetts, behind the Peabody Essex Museum. The house, built in 1664, abuts the Witch Memorial dedicated to, in 1992 on the 300th anniversary of the Salem Witch Trials and is also next to the second oldest burying ground in America. Old Bearing Point. These properties form part of the Charter Street Historic District. The Pickman House boasts American colonial architecture for the first period. The style of the large central brick chimney is an excellent example of first period craftsmanship. The house was restored by Historic Salem in 1969 and purchased by the Peabody Essex Museum in 83. The Pickman House is not open to the public. A story continues to circulate about the spirit of a young girl who looks down from the attic window. It is based on urban legends surrounding a tale of a father going berserk and killing his daughter and wife. No documents have been found to substantiate the story. Yet a great number of people say they see the little girl's pale face looking down woefully from the attic where she was supposedly murdered. The Salem Inn, 7 Summer Street. The Salem Inn is actually one of the three bed and breakfasts owned by Richard and Diane Pabich. The West House is the largest and sits across from Witch House on Summer Street. Salem Inn, in, Salem Inn emblazes a plaque hanging from the beautiful Greek Revival building. It offers 22 guest rooms and is the only pet friendly inn in Salem. It has a very haunted reputation based on, perhaps, the fact that it is sitting on the land once owned by Judge Jonathan Corwin while he, re while he resided across the street in what is now known as the Witch House. The land Salem Inn was built upon was purchased in 1811 by Captain Nathaniel West. In 1834, he built three townhouses. He died while living in one of the townhomes. When, when the Pabbages purchased the townhouse in 83, they combined them, keeping the Victorian era for which the inn is known. Antiques grace each room and common area. The other two inns, owned and operated by the Pabbages, are nearby the Peabody House. Are nearby. The Peabody House was built as a single-family Dutch colonial home in 1874 by John P. Peabody, a purveyor of ladies' fine furnishings. The house offers four large suites, with kitchenettes, along with two romantic rooms with king-size four-poster beds. All rooms offer European walk-in showers and in, in the end suite modern bathrooms, and most offer working fireplaces. The Kerwin House 
is an Italianate revival building built in 1854 by James B. Kerwin and his brother, Captain Samuel R. Kerwin. The brothers are related to the Corwins, who acted as judge and sheriff in the 1692 witch trials. Each of the 11 guest rooms in a Kerwin house offer private baths. It is an adult-only inn. The other two houses in the Salem Inn conglomerate welcome children, and, as mentioned, the West House of Salem Inn allows pets. The rooms here offer three deluxe suites with a whirlpool bath, fireplace, and queen-size bed. Old rooms are handsomely furnished with antiques. Many stories of paranormal happenings have come from Salem Inn. Room 17 seems to be its most haunted location. Many guests have reported a transparent apparition of a young woman in 17th century period clothing. She has been seen in the breakfast room and gliding about the hallways. The sound of a gunshot has been reported along with doors opening and closing by themselves and electrical devices turning on by themselves. Guests see things move about the room and even disappear. The TV remote control has been tossed to the floor and the lights extinguished at, the very, inconvenient, at very inconvenient times, such as when one is taking a bath in the jacuzzi tub. People say they have felt pressure as they lay in bed, as though something has decided to lay down as well on top of them. Rooms 12, 13, and 15 have their own ghostly showing. Doorknobs rattle when no, when no one is there. The sound of long skirts swishing along the floorboards is heard, and even makeup cases have been flung through the air while the female guests are dressing for dinner. Room 16 seems to have spirits in the room who do not mind announcing themselves. They knock on the door, turn the water off in the sink, and even make appearances in the form of shimmering shapes walking about the room. Room 40 reports muffled voices stomping and knocking sounds. The Peabody House and the Kerwin House tout their own ghost stories, but it is agreed Salem Inn holds the record. The Stephen Daniels House, 1 Daniel Street. The Stephen Daniels House was built in 1667 by Stephen Daniels, with a new addition added in 1756. The home was a private residence for a, for a direct descendant of the Daniels family for nearly 300 years. It was converted excuse me, to a two-family home for a short time before becoming a bed and breakfast. The home was converted to a restaurant and inn in 1945 by the Haulers. Current owner Catherine Gill, affectionately known as Kay, purchased the inn in 1962 and has proudly served as innkeeper and caretaker for 49 years, making it Salem's oldest running bed and breakfast. The house sits near the House of the Seven Gables and Pickering Wharf. It is named after Stephen Daniels, an affluent sea captain who built the three-story wooden structure in 1667. <laughs> the home was purchased in 1962 by Thomas and Kelly Gill of Chicago. They ran it as a bed and breakfast and operated a restaurant there as well. William Shatner is said to have dined there. Although Thomas has passed away, Kay continues to run the inn, serving continental breakfast to guests and happily telling her stories of the history of the house. The playwright Arthur Miller stayed here in one of the four upstairs bedrooms. The house has nine fireplaces, which is not unusual for a first period home. Each room needed its own fireplace. Guests most often report seeing a ghost in a shiny black hat and coat. He is suspected of opening and closing windows and rolling up the window blinds. Guests have seen the, the wraith of a woman falling down the stairs and the apparition of a man resembling one of the many portraits adorning the walls of the home. Yet, the Stephen Daniels house's most famous ghost is that of a tabby cat. 
One guest painted a portrait of a cat she had never seen before visiting Salem. She was shocked to see a cat exactly resembling the picture she had painted on the grounds of the Daniels house. More disturbing was that the creature disappeared before her eyes. Kay Gill, the proprietor, does have a cat. Hang on, doesn't see. Yeah, does have a cat, let alone one that disappears, and says she has yet to see the specter of the feline that reportedly jumps up on the guest beds and offers to cuddle with them. The Salem Athenaeum, 337 Essex Street. You look at it. Oh, you guys, let's see, we got comments going? Okay. I don't, we may not finish this book today. The name Athenium, oh man, okay. The name Athenium is derived from Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. It's no wonder as the building's history includes the social library, social library in 1760, and the Salem Philosophical Library in 1781. By 1810, the two libraries merged to create the Salem Athenium. When the Athenium was founded, there were more libraries in Salem than in Boston. Salem had become a center of learning and culture. The Library of Arts and Sciences and the Fourth Social Library were also opened. The Essex Institute housed extensive holdings of maritime information, artifacts, and curiosities. For the first four decades of his existence, the Anthidium Oh god, that was just one okay. The Anthidium Okay, it just moved on me. The Anthidium had no permanent home, occupying quarters at four different locations in Salem. In the eighteen fifties, a bequest from Carolyn Plummer enabled the Athenium to erect a brick building in the Italian age style at 132 Essex Street. It later sold the building to the Essex Institute, now the Peabody Essex Museum, in 1905, and with the proceeds constructed the building it now currently occupies at 337 Essex Street. It was dedicated in 1907. Today, the Athenium is home to over 50,000 volumes and is circulating in research and research collections. Cultural programs, including concerts, readings, lectures, performances, and lively social gatherings are offered, along with a reading room and gardens for quiet work. Speaking of quiet work, Nathaniel Hawthorne spent each noon break from his work at the Customs House reading at the Athenian. He was not the only one who found the library welcoming retreat. Amid the books of quiet, an 80-year-old gentleman, Reverend Harris, frequented the reading room as well always nodding in quiet recognition to young Hawthorne, who shared the space with him. Years later, old Harris passed away. It was then, with some shock, that for the next five consecutive days after the man's death, Hawthorne would look up to see Reverend Harris seated in his favorite place in a chair by the fireplace in the library reading room. It so impacted the author that Hawthorne documented it in some of his papers. His fascination with ghosts was threaded throughout many of his great works. The Morning Glory, Bed and Breakfast, 22 Hardy Street. I have to just give me a second here to enlarge the screen a little bit because I can't see comments. And yeah, okay. Boy, can I see myself now. Wow. Okay, anyway, getting back to this. Uh, the Morning Glory, Bed and Breakfast, 22 Hardy Street. Morning Glory Bed and Breakfast is a beautifully restored Georgian federal home, 
circa 1808, located in historic Salem, Massachusetts. The inn is owned and operated by Bob Shea, a native of Salem. The home is ideally situated on a very quiet, dead-end street, a stone's throw away from beautiful Salem Harbor, across the street from the historic House of the Seven Gables, and an easy walk to all the seaside restaurants, museums, and attractions Salem has to offer. The view of Salem Harbor from its rooftop deck is a treasured bonus to staying here. A few spirits must agree. A guest once asked the owner of the inn if the inn was haunted. They were at beautiful breakfast. They were at okay. They were at <laughs> breakfast at the time. Before he could answer, a tea kettle suddenly flew off the stove and onto the floor. Mister Shea left the room, finding the kettle had answered a question for him. Another guest reported seeing a young woman of about 17 years of age peering in at her from the upper outside balcony. When she checked, there was no one there. It would seem the kettle was not the only thing that could fly. The Old Salem Witch Jail Site, 10 Federal Street. All that remains of the jail that held many of the witch trial prisoners is a plaque on a modern brick building in the middle of Salem. The structure sits across from a large parking lot adding to the old juxtaposition of the eras. It sits now at the corner of Federal Street and St. Peter Street, once called Prison Lane during the witch trial period. It was here that innocent people who had been cried out against from afflicted girls languished as they awaited their trials and after their executions. Nineteen people were hanged for witchcraft. One man, Giles Corey, crushed to death, and at least five others died in the jail while awaiting their fates. The conditions were horrific. The jailers in town profited by charging the families of the accused for everything from their food to the irons that shackled their ankles. When Ann Foster died in the jail while awaiting her fate, her son was charged two pounds, 16 shillings, just to remove her body. The jail was only 70 feet by 280 feet, 280 feet, made of rough, tanning timbers. It was frigid in the winter and stifling in the summer. Rats ran rampant, and torture was not an uncommon occurrence as prisoners were constantly urged to confess to witchcraft. Families could bring clean clothes, blankets, and fresh food, but many homes had been left destitute by the witchcraft outbreak, and many just couldn't afford the trip or care package. While the site is today a modern one, one can still pause to imagine the ox cart waiting outside the jail door to deliver the condemned to Gallows Hill, amid the shouts of hundreds of spectators there to witness the the executions. The original jail was raised in 1956 after being abandoned in 1813 as a jail. In Frances Hill's book, Hunting for Witches, she states, in the 1930s, a house stood on the site, built with timbers from the jail. In that decade, it became Salem's first witch city attraction when the good, when the good old family who owned it constructed a replica of the dungeons and, char and charged tourist admission. The old witch jail and dungeon as it was known, through tens of thousands of visitors before being bulldozed to make way for the telephone company building. The attraction then moved to Lindell Street, to Lynn Street, becoming the Witch Dungeon, which is still there today. The original timbers from the jail were donated to the Peabody Essex Museum, but are not on display. One beam from the original jail can be seen at the Salem Witch Museum, and one can be found at the Witch Dungeon. The Witch Dungeon 16 Lynn Street. Oh, this is weird. Hang on.
Something happened. Hang on. Okay, here we go. Huh, that was really weird. The witch dungeon. See, like I told you the way this is designed. The captions and stuff for these photos and papers are like strange positions because I have to enlarge this so high to read it. The witch dungeon museum is a former church, and many visitors and staff have said they've seen the specter of a hooded monk in the dungeon section of the tour. He is often seen near the crushing death of Giles Coring exhibit. The basement of the attraction has been turned into a walking tour of over a dozen vignettes depicting the witchcraft events. Vignettes. 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 God help me today. It is a very chilling feeling to be below ground in a darkened tunnel-like atmosphere with realistic settings. People have reported hearing whispering, things moving about, and the, and the monk who seems to join tour groups. The original support beam from the jail is found here, and photographs have picked up images of strange people standing beneath it in period clothing. This author has written about the stone tape theory in my book, The History and Haunting of the Stanley Hotel. It has been scientifically proven that some types of minerals and other components can retain energy and play it back under certain conditions. Many castles in Europe have quartz in the stonework. Quartz is used in radios to transmit signals. Signals are frequency. Energy is frequency. Human beings are 99% energy and light. Is it so far-fetched to think that when we die, our energy continues on and is, in fact, a frequency? Quantum physicists are saying every human being has their own frequency that goes out and interacts with other frequencies. Sometimes that energy imprints on cameras and video recorders. For one thing is certain, energy cannot be destroyed. It can only change forms. Thus, when we die and our physical bodies are laid to rest, the energy that comprises us must go on. We call it ghosts or hauntings. It appears the Witch Dungeon and other places in Essex County have some excess energy going on. If you're looking to see how a pillory works, there is one in front of the Witch Museum. I have witnessed many a hapless husband trapped there with his head and hands protruding from the openings. It makes for a fun photo op. I'm sure to the Puritans who were locked into these devices during their public humiliation, it was not much fun. You could be sent to the stocks for stealing berating your husband, if you were a female, and other sundry offenses. The Witch Trial Sites 70 Washington Street A plaque standing literally in the middle of modern-day Salem Street marks the location of the townhouse where the witch trials were conducted. The building is long gone, but the stigma of what happened at this location will last for decades to come. The plaque reads, nearly opposite this spot, in the middle of the street, stood a building devoted to, from 1677 to 1718, to municipal and judicial uses. In it, from 1692, were tried and condemned for witchcraft. Most of the 19 persons who suffered death on the gallows, Giles Corey, was, was here put on trial on the same charge and refusing to plead, was taken away and pressed to death. In January 1693, 21 persons were tried, were tried here for witchcraft, of whom 18 were acquitted and three condemned, but later set free, together with about 150 accused persons in, general, in a general delivery, which occurred in May 
which occurred in May. Okay. Nicholas Noy is the infamous reverend who played an integral part in the witch trials, lived only steps away from, town, from the townhouse. He was in attendance and even took notes during the trials. Noyes also witnessed the hangings, and it was to him that Sarah Good shouted, I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take my life, God will give you blood to drink. Noyes died of a hemorrhage, and it was reported his mouth was filled with blood. Salem Witch Trial Memorial, 98 Liberty Street. Located just off Charter Street on Liberty Street is Salem's simple yet dramatic memorial to the 20 victims of the witch trials of 1692. Four-foot-high granite walls surround three sides with granite benches representing each victim, cantilevered inward from the wall. Etched on each bench is a name, means of execution, and execution date. One could read on the stone threshold of the memorial, words of the accused taken directly from court transcripts. Visitors will note that the words among them, God knows I am innocent, are cut off in mid-sentence, representing lives cut short and indifference to the protestations of the innocents. A public design competition, juried by five noted professionals, resulted in 246 entrants. The winning entry, designed by Maggie Smith and James Cutler of Bainbridge Island, Washington, was presented to the press and public by renowned playwright Arthur Miller on November 14, 1991. Among the notable works by Miller is The Crucible, which used the Salem Witch Trials as an allegory for the McCarthyism of the late 1940s and early 1950s. The Witch Trials Memorial was dedicated on August 5, 1992 by Nobel laureate, Holocaust survivor, and author Ali Weasel. Sorry about that. Who noted, If I can't stop all of the hate all over the world and all the people, I can't stop it in one place within me. Adding, We, have our, we all have our Salems. The quiet and peaceful memorial located in the center of Salem provides a place for people to pay their respects, to reflect on tolerance and understanding, and to remember the inspiring story of personal courage revealed in 1692. Just over the wall of the memorial is the old Burying Point Cemetery, ironically, the graves of which trial judges John Hawthorne and Bartholomew Gedney are buried here. One wonders if the names carved in stone benches at the Salem Witch Memorial ever whisper on the night breezes and linger over the grave markers of the two magistrates responsible for signing their death sentences. The haunting found here is one of personal reflection, a stirring that picks up that picks up the scabs of conscience. Are we of better temperament today than the souls of 1692? Would we condemn another based on jealousy, greed, or grievances? It should be the stuff that haunts our dreams. Could it happen again? Could it happen again? The cemeteries. St. Mary's Cemetery, Route 114, Salem. St. Mary's Cemetery is located on Route 114. It is reported to be New England's most haunted cemetery, dating back to the 19th century. The large resting place is home to politicians and other notables. It also lays claim to a phantom dog that has been seen and heard running amidst the tombstones. Many have said they feel an oppressive atmosphere and the feeling that they are trespassing. Old Burying Point. Charter Street, Salem. In 1637, the town of Salem set aside an area of land to be used as a burial place. It is the oldest cemetery in Salem and the second oldest in America. 
tombstones mark the graves of Judge John Hawthorne and John and Judge Bartholomew Gedney, famous for their roles in the Salem Witch Trials. Giles Corey's first wife, Mary, is buried here, along with more recognizable names such as Captain Richard Moore, who arrived in New England via the Mayflower, and Governor Simon Broadstreet, Reverend John Higginson, who played a part in the witchcraft hysteria, is also buried here. The cemetery was a favorite place for local author Nathaniel Hawthorne to spend his meditative moments. He often wandered through the old bearing point, through old bearing point, and studied the markers. He used a few of the names in his novels, notably Doctor Swinnerton and his old relative John Hawthorne, who appeared as characters in the House of the Seven Gables. In his novel Doctor Grimshaw's Secret, he mentions the graveyard Grimshaw House is still standing. The graveyard. Okay, sorry about that. Grim, Grim, Grimshaw House is still standing at 53 Charter Street. It was here Nathaniel met his wife Sophia in 1837. The usual phenomenon is attributed to the cemetery. Mysterious lights, a glimpse of something floating amidst the stones, and hushed voices. The witch trial memorial sits on the other side of the stone wall. Howard Street Cemetery. Howard Street near 50th Street. I see. Okay, now never mind, I read it wrong. Howard Street near 50 St. Peter Street. <laughs> it's just been one of those days, gang. Howard Street Cemetery sits just on the other side of, of an iron fence that was the site of the old jail. This is not to be confused with the Salem Gold Jail, which is on Federal Street. A new jail was built in 1813, now called the Old Jail, long after the area had been nothing but open fields. It was here that Sheriff Corwin and Judge Hawthorne took Giles Corey and laid him on the ground to be crushed to death beneath a board laden with large rocks. Howard Street is a narrow avenue, flanked by the cemetery on one side and apartments on the other. Standing there, looking out in the crumbling markers, one can't help but step back to the year 1692 and picture the poor man lying there alone for three days, given only a mouthful of water and some bread. The idea was that he would finally cave beneath the torture and confess to witchcraft. They underestimated Corey and his resolve. He died with the final statement, more weight. St. Peter's goes right by the location where Corey died. In 1692, St. Peter's was called Prison Lane. It is very possible Giles' wife, Martha Corey, saw him lying there as the cart bearing her to the gallows hill passed by. There is a legend that Corey cursed Salem with his final breath. I can find no mention of it in the transcripts. According to Nathaniel Hawthorne, there was a legend that Corey had cursed the town in his final moments. One such account says his actual words were, Salem will burn. Over the years, the word spread that whenever calamity was about to befall Salem, Corey's ghost would appear in the old cemetery. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, Tradition was long current that at stated periods the ghost of Giles Corey, the wizard, appeared on the spot where he suffered as the precursor of some calamity that was impending over the community, which the apparition came to announce. It was reported that Corey's ghost was seen before the Great Fire of June 25, 1914. If Corey had cursed Salem with destruction by fire, he came close. The fire of 1914 destroyed one-fourth of the city. Let's see. We'll try and squeeze one more in here. Broad Street Cemetery. A small mound bordered by Broad, Summer, and Giddy Street. Although Broad Street Cemetery is the smallest cemetery in Salem, it is home to the graves of two of the most reviled participants in the witch trials. It is here that the body of Sheriff George Corwin was finally buried 
after his family hid him in the basement of the home for fear of the enraged for fear of the enraged inhabitants of Salem would desecrate his body. Barely had the body of Giles Corey been removed from the field, but Sheriff Corwin descended upon Corey's property and began carting off his goods. Others also lost their life's work to the sheriff once their arrest warrants were posted for witchcraft. The Proctor family was left destitute after Corwin took everything, including the copper pot filled with the family's broth for the day's meal. His father, Judge Jonathan Corwin, is also buried here. Together, the two Corwins went down in history as the most despised members of the trials. It is reported that either Hawthorne or Corwin were responsible for forcing Giles Corwin's tongue back into his mouth as he lay dying on the hard ground. The cemetery is said to host strange lights at night and a floating specter. Haunted Eats, Turner Seafood at Lycidium Hill. Turner Seafood catchphrase is anything fresher, it still swims. <laughs> As it has been awarded Best of North Shore, Best of North Shore Magazine four years straight, it seems the journal populace agrees with them. James F. Turner opened the Turner Fish Series in 1954. He was committed to supplying only the freshest New England seafood. With the growth of the commercial airline industry and the ability to fly fresh seafood anywhere in the United States, the country's finest restaurants and clubs began advertising today's fish flown in fresh from Boston's Turner Fisheries. Likewise, Turner Fisheries proudly displayed its new title, the nation's leading quality seafood house. In 1994, John's Four Sons opened Turner Seafood Grill and Market in their hometown, in their hometown of Melrose, Massachusetts. This authentic New England seafood house is complete with a fresh fish market and turn-of-the-century oyster bar. The Turners expanded their retail operation to historic Gloucester and the nation's oldest fishing port in 2006. In 2010, the Turner family launched it on launched, launched its online dock-to-door seafood market shipping fresh daily overnight from Gloucester to anywhere in the continental U.S. In November 2013, historic Lyceum Hall in Salem, Massachusetts became home to the family's latest seafood experience. With an authentic shuck and serve oyster bar, the city's only seafood market, classic lunch and dinner fare, and a top choice for wedding rehearsal dinners, it's safe to say Turner's is having an impact on Salem. It appears that something may be impacting Turner's as well. It is said Turner's Seafood at Lyceum Hall sits on the previous side of Bridget Bishop's apple orchard. Bishop was the first person to be hanged during the 1692 witch trials. She ran a tavern in Salem, making ale from her apples, and was rather notorious figure with her flashy clothes and sharp tongue. Many odd occurrences have happened at Turner's, especially in the stairwell and upstairs rooms. Michael Toglio was dining at Turner's in September of 2018. He asked if he might see the upstairs, and the staff member willingly obliged. The picture on the following page shows the white wraith of the staircase. Yeah, I see something kind of, kind of there. While visiting the upstairs room, Michael captured a rather large orb, which appears at the right of the picture on the drapes. Okay. In Sam Baltus's book, Ghosts of Salem, Haunts of Witch City, he states, I have had several odd experiences outside of, my, of Lyceum Hall, which was believed to be Bridget Bishop's orchard. An apple mysteriously rolled out of nowhere in the alley behind what is now Turner Seafood. I looked up. No one was there. I accepted it as a peace offering from, from Bridget, who later became one of my favorite characters on the tour. Turner's Seafood is located on the floor, first floor of Lyceum Hall 
and Lyceum is a public hall where lectures, programs, and concerts are offered. They were, they were very popular in England, and, and as the Puritans set sail for America, they brought the tradition along. The Salem Lyceum was created in 1830 by Josiah Holbrook, and it quickly became a hit. Salem boasted the first Lyceum Hall in America. The theater offered 700 seats and two weekly lectures. This was something new, an education series that was not just for the elite, but for everyone. Salem witnessed some of the greatest artists and feats in American history. The first long-distance phone call was made within the Salem Lyceum walls. As the audience listened in astonishment, Alexander Graham Bell made a long-distance phone call to his partner, excuse me, Thomas Watson, 18 miles away in Boston. When Watson's voice came back to the newly invented telephone, the applause was thunderous. Other greats graced the hall. Henry David Thoreau, Daniel Webster, Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Quincy Adams, and Horace Mann, to name a few. With Salem's close proximity to Boston, it was able to pluck from the notables that visited the capital for, for both business and cultural events. While the original wooden building caught fire in 1894 and burned to the ground, the current structure of brick was built atop the original location. The second floor is now used for events hosted by Turner Seafood. It would seem not all things went up in smoke. Stories of missing glassware, things being hurled down the stairs, the smell of apple blossoms, and the figure of a woman seen on the second floor are all reported today. The third floor coat room and attic have an impressive feeling at times, and things have been found to be moved around. Perhaps the spirits that linger here know great seafood when they see it. Okay, guys, I'm going to have to stop. Um, the hour's almost up. So I'm in page I'm in, I'm in pages six ten to six thirty four. So we'll have one more day of reading on this probably next Sunday, unless you know something happens with a guest this week. So um, yeah, so we're just about wrapped. Let me um, okay, get the page down. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for coming today. I appreciate it, and I will see you tomorrow because our guest is going to be. I'll see you at six thirty p.m. Pacific. Our guest is going to be Wayne Passell. And he is an animal activist, and uh, he's got some new stuff to share with us. So that'll be an interesting thing tomorrow. So I'll see you guys at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, I want you to have a good rest of your weekend. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you.